This episode of the Photographer Mindset Podcast is sponsored by iStorage. iStorage makes state-of-the-art, ultra-secure, and easy-to-use hardware-encrypted portable storage devices, which is just a fancy way of saying they make the best password-protected hard drives so that you have total security over your data and files. I've got a one terabyte SSD hard drive from iStorage called the Disk Assure M2, and it is flipping awesome. Compact, easy to use, and it gives me total ownership over my digital assets so that I'm not worried about theft. The thing's even waterproof. The devices are protected against brute force intrusions. They have independent user and admin pin codes, are password and hardware encrypted, and they'll work on multiple operating systems without the need for annoying software. They'll work on any device with a USB port. Some of their devices even hold up to 20 terabytes, and if that's not enough, they also have encrypted cloud storage so you can easily manage and share your data securely in the cloud. If you're a business owner, consider iStorage encrypted hard drives to build trust with clients over sensitive information, build your brand reputation, and avoid heavy expenses involved in security breaches. There's a 30-day evaluation program for organizations and government bodies. Use the code TPM15, that's TPM15, for 15% off your order when making a purchase on their website. Click the link in the episode description to check out their product line more in-depth. Products are also available on Amazon. Hello, everybody. This is Aaron, your co-host. And unfortunately, I could not be on the show today. Uh, we had some scheduling conflicts and I had to work my normal job. That's okay. You know, you, you can't make them all sometimes. And I, I might miss a few, might miss some few, a few important events. You just never know. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, but I wanted to chime in in this forward from the present moment in the future of the past of where you're listening to this. I've already heard it and I'm chiming in before you hear it to give you my take on what happened just quickly. But before I do that, I do want to remind you that in the future, Seth is going to talk about cryptocurrency, whatever the hell that means. He's going to say some big words and some things that I don't know what's going on. I'm quite the boomer here. But he wanted me to tell you that There are these Ledger crypto wallets, and there's a link in the episode description to get 10% off any Ledger cold storage wallet to keep your crypto secure. Use the code BLACKFRIDAY10 from now in the current moment to the future Monday, which is in a couple days. So use that code to keep your crypto safe in a Ledger wallet, again, whatever that means. But listen, I wanted to chime in because I did hear the interview that you were about to hear, and I want to give a little bit of uh, some thoughts, some some mantis moments, if you will. And the one thing that I want to discuss and show gratitude for, this is Thanksgiving weekend, uh, and Angel on the interview mentions something that is very true to my heart and something I've thought about many, many times. And if you look over to that that little black box, that little machine, uh, that, that camera is what I'm trying to say, that camera that's next to you, or maybe it's in you know on the shelf or in your car, wherever it is, 
Think about how much that camera has propelled you to go see things or take that sunrise hike or stick around for sunset or Astro or Milky Way uh, to meet up with that group of people uh, to start a podcast about photography and mindset. Don't forget that. But I often think about the things that we do and what gets us there. And I'm, I want to show gratitude. And this episode reminded me to show gratitude for this camera. What we all love. We're all here on the show listening because of similar interests, because of similar passions, because we want to grow and learn. And that camera has brought us here. And that's what I took away from the show along with a, a, a slew of interesting thoughts and facts. And Seth did a great job with the interview. And Angel seems like, well, an angel. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this interview. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. And please, one more little ask. If you could, could you rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show? That helps us tremendously uh, to get the, the show out there to people. Uh, helps spread it around and it does us a solid. So we do appreciate that. It is Thanksgiving. Uh, we're showing much gratitude to our fans and everyone that listens in week to week. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy the episode. This is the Photographer Mindset Podcast. <music> Well, Angel, tell me what Swedish cold French finesse and Swiss quality means. How does that all, how does that all blend together? That's an interesting personal brand tagline. What's the thought yes. behind that? So the thought behind that is because initially I'm from Sweden. So I have half right. my family coming from Sweden, half of it's going from France. And then we moved when I was a kid to Switzerland. So I've been living my whole life in Switzerland, but I am um, originally French and Swedish and became Swiss along the way a few years ago. Um, wow. So it was, it was more to blend the three parts of my origins and personality into something that makes, uh, makes it a bit more unique. So let me guess, you probably know more than four languages. Uh, four. I do four. Four. Yeah. Look Some, at that. Yeah. <laughs> Some are a bit rusty because Look I have, uh, yeah, well, very <laughs> we were, well, I guess. <laughs> we were just talking about how it's hard to, you know, get to know people based, you know, through the texts and through the DMs. Yeah. You only kind of know the surface layer of people. And here I am guessing exactly how many languages you know. So, <laughs> so I'll pat myself Good. on the back for that one. Why don't, um, just for a little background uh, for listeners, yeah. why don't you tell us how you, you know, it's always good to know how you got into photography from your, your starting points to where you're at now. I read on your website, you're inspired by an early age at 10 years old, if that's correct. Yep. Yes. Everyone's journey is sort of different. So why don't you walk us through from that period till now, and then we'll get into some, uh, some deeper discussion. Yeah, sure. So no, indeed, it started at the age of 10. Uh, my dad is a very passionate photographer. So this is kind of where it came from. Mm. Um, we are three brother and sisters, and he found a way to put that same passion in, in at least one of them, one of his mm. child. Um, so, uh, I started getting at the age of 10, a little cool pics from Nikon camera, um, yep. from my dad directly. And, um, that is a little bit where I started. So I would just, you know, have fun on a bit in the garden, um, whatever I would find funny to shoot. Um, I would start from there. And then I 
left it a little bit behind. Um, a few years after, I got into more um, DSLR equipment, um, old cameras from my dad that he wouldn't use anymore because maybe the sensor was a bit old, not working for him uh, that much. Uh, so I took on um, his past equipment, um, still had fun, but didn't quite understand what I was doing with it. But I had kind of an eye still for what I was shooting, even though I didn't understand the settings, uh, the mm -hmm. ISO, uh, shutter speed, and so on. And it was only in 2020 when COVID hit um, that I decided to start and travel with my partner as in Switzerland because I've been living here my yeah almost my whole life. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know the country that well. So I didn't know the mountains so much. I didn't know so much the landscape that we had. I saw pictures on Instagram and so on. But I was not too interested in, in, in going there. Um, and I decided to spend everything that I had at the time. Um, so I was working on an internship in, in a corporate uh, company um, mm -hmm. and decided to spend everything that I had into my own equipment. And the fact that I made that uh, choice also um, brought more, you know, the accountability and responsibility to go and shoot and try it out and understand the equipment that I had under my hands. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where um, landscape photography became uh, really central um, to the work that I do today. Um, I moved later on also into composite photography. Maybe this right. is something you want to tackle later we're, on. We're definitely going to talk tackle it. <laughs> maybe not even later on, maybe sooner than later. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it's interesting that COVID was, the lockdown was a very interesting time. Yeah. And I find that, at least from my observation, people either really excelled during COVID in terms of it was a mental reset and a chance to reassess and maybe go after some passions people had been thinking about, which sounds sort of like your case. Or there was kind of that dark pit that people yeah. fell into, uh, which is just, a, you know, there's, I don't really have an opinion on it. It's just sort of an observation that I've noticed. Um, what did that sort of mental, re how did that mental reset help you discover that you wanted to come back to photography after taking a break from it for a few years? Um, so for me, first, COVID was um, one of the best time for me um, because I um, went back to that passion, as I said. I mm. used to still do photography, you know, for a few years from time to time. So I was also part of a, a, part of a startup um, helping to get pictures and uh, videos for um, small and medium enterprises around um, where I live. But landscape photography has not been so central. And I think that resets came also because um, since we were not allowed to either see so many people and also got cut out of university, of work, of people, um, nature became also where um, I could uh, kind of energize myself. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where photography also was really central to it because I like to say that um, the what is really driving me and pushing me to get you know to these mountains um go to summits um spend the night in ice cold conditions is because i have the camera without the camera uh, i'm not sure i would have been able to make it physically to some of the spots right. um, but because i had the camera with me this is really this was really my driver so it was a good reset also in that sense um, right. mentally and it brought me closer much much closer to the mountains yeah very good so when you're out in freezing cold conditions and maybe there's dangerous winds and you start asking yourself questions, right? Why am I doing this? Yes. Or what am, what am I trying to achieve with the, the end result I'm going after? How does asking yourself, in your opinion, how does asking yourself questions like this make you a better artist? 
I think it's when you are in these conditions and it gets tricky and there was two or three this year that made me think of it. You know, you're exhausted. It's mm. physically and mentally difficult. You, at some point, I didn't know if I was going to make it back home um, to one of them. Um, it's, but the fact that you are able to go beyond that, um, I think makes it, um, it put, it brings a purpose also to what you're doing and being able to share that back when you're back home um, allows you to bring a whole set of storytelling around an image. Usually we say that an image um, can speak a thousand words, um, but I also agree on the opposite that if you bring some words to an image, this is also something um, that brings the whole uniqueness around it. Um, and people can definitely resonate more with the, with the piece that they have in front of them. Right. So for me, it's about storytelling as well, a lot. Um, but it brings a lot of purpose to what I do. Um, and this is what most of these questions, when they arise, um, that they keep me pushing um, to get that final image that I had right. in, my, in mind initially. Right. So those, you know, all that hard work, let's say, behind an image and the, the story and the, the difficulty... Are you one of those photographers where that's a personal piece of your memory and that that's, that's, you know, intimate with you, like it's for you? Or do you really like to let people know that difficult story, the public, when you're posting? Or do you like to keep that as a private moment? Um, I think that most of the time I'm sharing, um, mm. and this is what I like the most when I do uh, an image, when I create an image, um, it's the sharing that goes uh, behind. Sometimes I keep it first to myself and then decide you know, to have it for a few months, also because I have to process a little bit of the feelings uh, that mm. I have been going through, especially if it was a hard moment to capture um, or to get that image or to edit it. So I like to sometimes keep it for a few months, but usually I am more sharing the emotions and the right. feelings that go behind. Um, just because it's it's also what I've seen um, resonates the most with people. People really get interested in, in the story behind, um, and I like to share it anyway. So for me, it's something that I tend to keep some details to me, but right. eventually they go out. Yeah. Do you find? Do you hope that that interest from your audience turns into something else? And in, in the terms of maybe it inspires them to go do what you do or yeah. something similar or do you just are you just satisfied with the fact that they find interest in it and find it entertaining for lack of a better word no i hope it does bring some action behind um either you know to inspire to get out and see what you can create um out of what you have around you um and i know that i'm very lucky that i have such incredible landscapes around me in Switzerland um, yeah. and so do you in Canada everyone is not yeah. as lucky as we are um, but really pushing people to get out of that comfort zone whether it is you know to create an image whether it is to to pursue uh, music um, that you want to launch or that you want to create whatever it is um, it's more about getting out of that comfort zone um, getting that challenge and and getting the satisfaction yeah. of going towards that goal uh, that I would like to inspire also uh, to the people um, who I share my images with. For sure. Now, yeah. this is a question I don't have in my notes, but it just got me thinking. Do you think that all people have a creative aspect to themselves or do you think some people are just inherently creative and others aren't? I think everybody has something in them. Um, I think it's also kind of like a muscle, so you can train for it. Yeah. Um, and some people are better fit from the beginning and are luckier um, to be maybe more creative, whether from their past environments or just because it's, it's part of them. But I think this is something you can train because I used to think of myself as not creative. Um, and this is also... 
uh, this was also really one of the biggest pain that I had till COVID hit and that I was able to find back that passion with photography. I used to think that I was really something that had no creativity whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very hard for me to, to get out of that kind of circle that's, um, yeah, dragged me down in, in everything that I was doing um, and not finding the purpose. So I think creativity lies within everyone. Um, it just finding the way or the mean um, to express it is, is where the, the challenge can lie mm-hmm. um, for most of the people. So to go even further on that, what was it a very obvious and abrupt moment when you realized, hey, no, I actually am a really creative person or was that sort of gradual over months or weeks? And you know, what, what, what did it for you that you finally realized I am a creative person? I think it was when I started creating my first composites. Um, okay. I so it came uh, maybe at very um, spontaneously at some point, then came back very gradually, and I think it's still growing gradually now. But it came as a yeah, as a kind of a um, spark, mm-hmm. and um, that was when I was creating my first composite because I going into composite photography was also a big challenge for me because my dad is a traditional photographer, wildlife, landscape, you know, representing reality as you see it, mm-hmm. um, and I've been seeking a lot for um, his approval so through my creative process so going into composite photography was not easy for me in that sense um, but when I started doing it and I realized the um, the endless possibilities that you have when you can create an image out of the images that you personally took um, I think this is where I realized okay I can actually do something that is creative um, right. and I didn't thought myself I was capable of it Right. So it sounds almost like pushing your, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, trying a new style of photography that you knew would be difficult and challenging. And then achieving your vision was almost enough of a confidence booster to reaffirm that you are a creative person, even yeah. though you probably yeah. were all along. It just yeah. helped. I mean, there's something to be, I, I truly believe that when doing difficult things is important for us. It's important yes. to do difficult things because you get stronger when you do difficult things. You know, a good example is fitness. I mean, that's obvious. If you do hard workout, you get stronger. But I think yeah. it's difficult sometimes for people to see that strength development when it's not something tangible, when it's something you can't necessarily see. You, you know, you mentioned working your your mind out as a muscle, and it really is. Yeah. And uh, we definitely do get stronger by, by doing difficult things. Well, so we've talked about composite photography a little bit here. Yep. We're going to get into it here because there's some people, there's some traditionalists who say, no way, that's not photography, <laughs> right? I'm sure you're, you've dealt with this. So <laughs> yes. what, do you, what do you say to people who say, hey, you know what, composite photography, it's not real photography. Or they say, you know, it's digital art. You're a digital art artist. Um, do you agree with them? Do you disagree with them or a mixture? You know, what's your take? Um, a mixture um, because I have, so first of all, for me, the most important thing when you do composite photography is how you present it. So transparency and being right. truthful about what you're doing um, is key also for people to understand why you're doing it. I would agree. So this, yeah, so that was the first thing. And the reason I think there has been a lot of hate um, around composite photography is because there is still today a lot of photographers claiming that their images are um, traditional, real photography out of the camera side um, when it's not the case and you can clearly see it. Um, so this is the first part. So first being transparent about it has allowed me also to navigate much easier um, in that um, spectrum um, right. and explaining what I do. 
Um, but I still believe that it requires all the skills a photographer need because you are still, you know, um, getting out. You still need to know how the light works. Um, you're still shooting um, outside if it's landscape um, or if it's wildlife or whatever. So you still have to get that knowledge. And I got that knowledge by doing more traditional photography before, whether it was for client work, whether it was wildlife, because I did also a bit of wildlife in my past photography nice. life. So you still have to get that photography base and then... Composite photography requires another set of skills that I didn't have and that I learned, you know, just by doing, uh, which is more the editing part, putting things together and understanding mm. how lights work is actually, um, for me, much more of a brain creative work. And this is why I decided to go more into composite photography, because I could be more creative than just, you know, being controlled by the outside conditions. So whether it was right. not under my control and, and I felt that lack of creativity just shooting single shots um, somehow. So for me, it's a mix. Um, it requires indeed the skills of a, of a photographer. So to anyone saying that you're just creating digital art, I would not agree uh, with that. Um, and I do believe that composite photography sometimes require at least, if not more effort um, in creating a final piece um, mm -hmm. than um, a normal or traditional more traditional photo photographer um right. and you, yeah go ahead <laughs> no i just it's you have to have vision clearly i mean yes. you you have to notice all these elements of a scene when you're there because correct me if i'm wrong but all or the majority of your composites are all from the same area is that right yep yeah right exactly. so when you're on site, you're noticing all of these different things and figuring out how to blend them together, which is a tremendous exercise in creativity yeah. and and trying to execute a vision. And I can see how much more you know mental effort that requires. And I think you you said it exactly bang on at the start was that composite photography I think gets a bad rap when it's not yeah. presented as such when people say look at this photo I took and it's well yeah you did take all these photos but maybe you should let people know that it's a blend and just you know just simplifying what it is yeah. instead of trying to pass it off as as something else I think the transparency is huge in that regard and I think you're absolutely um, you're much more well received and authentic to do it that way yeah exactly no, and you you also see that um, because I've been able so you know to be with uh, other landscape photographers with me on some of the trips that I had this year, um, and the process in the end is the same. We've all been looking you know for compositions, uh, whether it is for foreground, how we can have the sky also aligning. Because I'm also taking care of um, all the preparation behind, knowing where mm -hmm. the stars will be and seeing where I can make it also you know as close to reality as possible, um, or have that blend between reality. And imagination um, and that requires also to understand the actual landscape and um, and conditions that you might get when you once you get there so that doesn't right. change so much from the other photographers I've been with yeah right yeah it'd be fun to go to an area where you've composed one of these composites and find all the little pieces that you yeah <laughs> blended together maybe you should make an app or an app or something composite hunting um, so you talked a little bit about how there's a a lot of effort that goes into piecing everything you've captured in the field together. Yeah. I know this isn't really, people aren't here for the technical side of photography for the most part, but maybe you could give us a simplified version of how your workflow works when you've come yeah. home from a shoot and you're, you're piecing together that final, that final comp. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so once I get home, uh, first I tend to sleep because I haven't <laughs> slept for the whole night and been spending two days at least outside. Right. Um, but no, um, I will usually let the images sit for um, a few days, um, trying not to go straight away into the editing part, um, just to let a little bit, you know, the idea simmer on how I want it to look like in the end. Um, and then basically, once I have all the images on the computer, I will go first through Lightroom. Um, and this is where I ch select, choose a little bit the elements that I want to put together. Um, I blend, I don't blend yet, but I will make sure that the color uh, harmony is okay, that the light is similar in every images and that it's it makes it a bit easier after for the blending. Mm -hmm. And then once I have all the elements, exporting everything to Photoshop. And this is where um, the biggest part of the work starts. Um, it's, you know, about masking, um, selecting the elements, uh, removing the different uh, backgrounds to add the new one and so on. So the most part of the work, I would say maybe 80% of it um, is done directly on Photoshop. Um, and then I go back at the end to Lightroom um, to tweak a little bit all the lights, the different details, shadows, vignetting, and so on. Um, but yeah, this is a little bit, uh, the ID is always Lightroom, Photoshop, back to Lightroom, and then usually an image is done. Um, right. I let it sit again for a few days because then, you know, I also get feedback. Um, I show it to um, the different people I have around, whether it's friends and family. Um, and then I go back to it a few days after because I feel that some details are not okay for me. I see colors that are not matching uh, what I had in mind. Um, and this is after that second trial that usually I'm happy with the final image. So when you're sending your, your drafts to friends, family... Are they yeah. honest with you? Do you find that they're honest with you and critiquing it for uh, the most part? <laughs> I think it depends who. Um, some people, I always get the same feedback and it's usually very positive. Um, but there are two people that are super truthful with me um, and will say, no, this is not okay. You need to tweak a little bit of light more here. And that is first my dad. So uh, my dad has been <laughs> a very big supporter um, of what I do, but he's also very critical in, in, in the images that I create. So he tends to give a lot of uh, very valid feedback, um, which I I believe makes the final image much better in the end so yeah now when you get that feedback are you absorbing that feedback and then deciding whether their assessment is right not i don't want to say right or wrong but mm. is worth making those changes or I, I guess what i'm asking is are you always like yep you're right because mm. uh, you know you're a person of inspiration, I'm going to change that. Or are you sometimes disregarding feedback? I mean, it's important to find people who are truthful yeah. and who have a level of believability, and you, you know, you respect them uh, and their opinion. But it's also sometimes important to still go your own way. How do you find that balance? No, so usually I take in the feedback um, and some of them I know from the very beginning that this is not what I'm looking for um, and this goes against the image that I had in mind um, for, for some of the details. So some feedback uh, is being disregarded, um, mm -hmm. not because I do not care about it, but because I know that this is not what I want to to capture and then share through the image. Um, and some of it, I will just, you know, try it myself, see a little bit how the feedback looks actually in the image um, and, and see if this is something that I prefer um, or if I favored the previous one. So depending right. on what the feedback is, um, I yeah, the action so may, might be different. 
you're more so look, it sounds like you're more so looking for feedback on elements you may have overlooked or missed. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. But the generally, if the, the whole image or the core of it um, requires some change or I get the feedback that this is not something that someone likes for some reason, um, this is a feedback that I might disregard because it goes far beyond or far, too far away from the image that I had in mind. Right. Let me ask you this. How do you approach composite photography compared to you know, traditional photography, traditional landscape photography. Is it, are there many differences or is it similar in approach? Um, I'm kind of interested in your headspace going into a classic landscape versus a (laughs) a more in-depth comp. I think I've seen um, a spectrum also uh, defining itself uh, when I was testing different kind of composite photography. And let me explain is that some images of mine I um, are to me softer composite photography. And that means that it's either the landscape is fully here, nothing changed. And I might have, you know, added just a sky that was outside of the, of the place I was in um, or, or moved a little bit, but they are very close to what you see in reality when you put the raw file or something next to it. And some others require, you know, a lot of work. And I have one in mind as well, where I have elements that come still from the same area, but from very, very different uh, viewpoints. So some images are much closer to landscape photography and requires, let's say, less editing uh, editing, uh, time or skills. Um, mm-hmm. And some of them are going much further into digital art, some might call it, um, than photography directly. And that becomes, you know, a piece that is really creative and out of something that you might see. Um, and this is, again, where I believe it's important to mention that this is not what you might see if you go to the location, mm-hmm. just also to make sure that people do not have um, expectations um, that are absolutely not what they're going to get once they get to the location. Right. So, depends. But uh, I see a spectrum here. Yeah, I was just gonna. I was just gonna use the word spectrum. It seems like a spectrum where you know maybe you're manipulating a very small portion, and then yeah. other times where the scene is completely altered and yeah. yeah, composited. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And so, I have a couple of questions for you here. Even with traditional photography, you get into Lightroom. Yeah. It's so easy to overcomplicate and take things yeah. too far or feel like you haven't done enough, how do you personally find the balance between keeping it simple and altering enough, but mm-hmm. not too much? Like, How do you yeah. avoid overcomplicating your workflow when you're on scene and when you're you know, in Lightroom Photoshop? Usually I can, I think you see a correlation also between the time you spend on a detail or on an element and the more time you spend on it, the more you get, you're overcomplicating it. Um, and this is something that I've seen in my personal workflow. Um, when I spend way too much time on an image, um, I rather start it over again from scratch um, because I know that I've been trying to do too much there um, and it requires just to start all over again. Um, so it's it's a hard balance to find, but even you know in more traditional um, landscape photography, when you're just editing a, a specific image on Lightroom, um, usually people start you know uh, pushing a lot of the contrast, a lot of the colors, and so on. And then with experience, 
start to to kind of go back down to something a bit more standard and more realistic um, and this is something that i've also been able to see with uh, composite photography we tend to want to put additional stars or put the moon with the milky way and that that's too, just, that's just too much and you get it also out of experience um, and out of feedback that's if if I feel when I'm not happy and convinced about an image because I know that I've been putting a lot of efforts and trying to add additional details um, and eventually just go back to something much uh, simpler. So it's yeah. it's a balance to find, but that comes with experience, I think. Yeah, sometimes less really is more. It's such a, yeah, definitely. a corny saying, but it, it really is true. <laughs> if you can get your, your intent, your message across in as little steps as possible, I think that's really the majority of the time the best approach. Yeah. Now, you mentioned... You know, I guess we both uh, realize that that that's a spectrum in terms of how far you want to take a comp, and you yeah. you know you use the word you use the word visual art. Would you consider yourself a hundred percent of the time that you're a photographer, or you know, are sometimes are you mm. a visual artist, or is photography a component of what makes you a visual artist? I guess the question is, are you a visual artist or are you a photographer, and does that change in your opinion from time to time? I think I don't think one exclude the other, um, but I see myself as a photographer first um, right. because I would not be able to create what I create without my camera um, in where, without going out shooting the images that that I finally have. Mm. So, a photographer is really um, I would say the main um, yeah title that would put on my on my head yeah. um, and visual artist or digital artist um, is. Maybe how I use photography to get there. Um, so this is why I also say um, I'm both a landscape photographer and composite photographer, composite artist or digital artist. Um, because in order to get that final image, I need mm. to have the photographer um, kind of um, hat to get yes. to that final um, final digital artist uh, hat. Yeah. So. It's so amazing because there's so many degrees of... Yeah composite photography i mean you could be taking photos from unsplash and you know blending four exactly or five yeah. different photos together and only the base layer is yours but in mm -hmm. your case it sounds like it's all yours right yeah. so it's just very interesting to keep in mind that there's different degrees of that genre and yeah. none is necessarily better or worse it's just that transparency again too right that's exactly so, that's so <laughs> critical and it's funny you mentioned also, you know, people getting to stock footage images to create um, that kind of imagery. And this is something that I've, I never wanted to go into, but I believe it's still a very good way to um, still learn how to do composite photography. If someone is trying to get into that um, art form, um, if you miss some of the images that you would need to just practice on Photoshop, this is a very good way to get there. Um, but in the end, at least for me, um, I feel a much more pride um, and satisfaction in being able to pull out an image that is entirely made of things that I've been uh, shooting myself um, yes. and getting the, these elements. And you don't run into any licensing issues down the road. If somebody exactly. really wants your image for something, <laughs> you own it 100%. You don't get into, yeah. any, that messy legal, any, into any messy legal issues, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sure you have a lot of early mornings, late nights, going out to scenes, frigid temperatures at times. What's yeah. so special to you about arriving on a scene, doing your artistic work, knowing everyone else is inside or in bed? Yeah, this is a, this is one of the best feelings that you have when you're out in the mountains. Yeah. Let's um, get into it. Even, 
even though it might not be very comfortable and it's uh, definitely not the best nights uh, that you might spend um, being either alone or with someone and you're just enjoying the cold, the silence, you're out there watching things that people are not. Um, and that's, I mostly refer to the stars as well, um, because I really, really enjoy um, spending that time, you know, just on those stars that you cannot mm. see that way, even if you're in a city, but you're still outside. Um, and, and yeah, you see the world that everybody um, doesn't have under their eyes. This is also the goal when I come back to be able to share what I've been able to see, where the camera has been able to capture. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an amazing feeling, very, very satisfactory, um, because you're kind of also on top of the world, closer to the stars closer to, to, to the sky um, and it requires so much effort to get there and um, that people are not necessarily willing to do so um, that's um, that brings a lot of satisfaction and pride um, in, in doing that yeah there's there's something to be said for your hands are cold you're tired yeah there's something to be said for enjoying suffering it sounds strange but yes i think as you progress along your photography journey or you find something that you really love and you realize that it's worth suffering for, you slowly start to understand what people mean when they say that they love discomfort or they love they love suffering to a certain extent. I'm not saying like yeah. massive grievances, but you know, being a little cold, being a little having bags under your eyes for the day, there's <laughs> there's some fun in suffering. Yes. Yeah, you feel because at some point you're extending also your comfort zone area. Um, so right. if it starts from everything that you're used to, to have around your home, getting out in, in places that are really uncomfortable and where people are also not used to do it. Because whenever I, I mention also to friends, okay, I'm going now to uh, 3,000 uh, 3, 3, peak, um, we'll be sleeping there, it will be minus 15, I will be spending the night out, people are freaking out so first for safety security and, mm -hmm. and comfort and it's cold and oh my god we're doing this i don't get it but you know you're doing something that people aren't and that you're expanding that comfort comfort zone um limit that you have um in order to make also the world closer to you um this is a little bit how i see it so yeah and i think the best piece of advice with the getting out of the comfort zone is to just not even think and just go and do something do it you know, just yeah. get up, just get up and go, you know, yeah. fight, th fight through that pain, fight through that. Uh, I don't want to be driving two hours. It's going to be cold. It's, once you fight through that, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. That, that yeah. little, you should really go back to bed. Your bed's yeah. warm. Once you fight through that, you're, you're on your way. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very attached to my bed. So <laughs> one, one way that I've found to not, or at least to minimize um, that potential feeling of keeping me in bed um, and ongoing is sleeping directly in the mountains. So, you know, um, hiking all throughout the day um, and then staying in the mountains so that I don't have, you know, um, to come go up from home and at 2 a.m. and then drive and so on, where I think the potentiality of me not going would be much higher than if I was already in the mountains and just had a cold night. So this is one of the ways that I have found. And anyway, I need to shoot both, usually sunrise, sunset, um, blue hour, uh, both in the morning and evening and at night. So it makes it, all, it makes it also very much easier to already be on site. Yeah, just deprive yourself of the, yeah. <laughs> the comfortable bed. Sometimes avoidance is the best best remedy <laughs> for temptation. You know, I'm one of those exactly. people who I'm very strict on trying to eat, you know, a diet of no sugars, try to limit mm -hmm. carbs, trying to, when I'm going for a snack, go for, you know, hummus or go for a fruit or some nuts instead of like a bag of chips. 
And but if I'm at the grocery store and I buy it and it's in the house, it's over, right? Exactly. My exactly. Preventative <laughs> medicine is what works for me. If it's not in the house, I can't eat it. <laughs> right? Exactly. But if, if it's in the house, you know, this is something I got to work on. I've gotten a lot better. At it. But if it's in the house, it's like, oh, it's yeah. so accessible, right? It's just so easy <laughs> to open that bag, or it's just so easy to climb into bed. But if there's no option for you, what else are you going to do? Right. That's right. You're That's forced right. to find that dopamine elsewhere. Yeah. 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 So putting right. it far away from me is also the best way I have found to actually get it done. So <laughs> absolutely. All right. Total topic change. <clears throat> yep. What do you think people who dismiss Web3 are missing out on? You know, what are they not getting? Um, even though I, I think people are missing the technology evolution. Um, even if people are not, you know, going into NFTs necessarily are not pushing themselves to create and so on, which is absolutely fine because we've seen also people, you know, just putting random stuff um, in, in the web three space just because it was an opportunity. Um, I think people are missing what will be a revolution in the next few years. Um, I have been a huge fan already, at least for the investing part of crypto um, way before NFT started. Um, and that is the Here we most go. part that we're talking, you're talking yeah. my language now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so I'll give you a little bit of background before you continue. So like, I'm not, yes, please. I'm, I'm not in the NFT space. Um, not sure if it's for me, but I'm big into crypto and the technology of blockchain. Yeah. So, um, that's just some background. So continue. Sorry. Yeah. I think I have, I started with the same background as you. Um, I, I'm big in cryptocurrencies. Um, I'm a huge Bitcoin, fi Bitcoin fan. Um, and I saw how Web3 evolved around um, blockchain technologies into mm -hmm. NFTs and that started with art. So I saw an opportunity for artists, first of all, to um, claim also um, the art that they have been putting out without getting the recognition or the ownership behind and very easy to get um, um, uh, stolen images um, lacking copyrights and so on. So, but apart from that, I think people are missing um, the, um, the technology behind, even if people right. might not, but might feel, so you, you, you hear a lot of, um, um, of arguments against it um, for the environment and everything that it uh, creates with, um, with the different servers that it requires to run um, to be able to, to function. But people are missing um, the core behind it, which is really decentralization. So disregarding Web3, um, just because it had that um, uh, effect of um, mode, uh, we say in French, um, is, is something that you might miss out from where it actually came from and why the technology has been, um, has been developed. So this is the biggest thing. Yeah, it's funny. I actually had in my notes, I have written down, do you see more value in the actual art? Or is there more value in people getting to experience how blockchain technology and how tokenized yeah. assets work through their art? I am yeah. of the mind of the, the second one, that mm -hmm. there's much more value in the education behind how blockchain technology works. And if your photography is a way for you to learn that system and learn the future of how digital assets are now tokenized and how those trade, that's a great education. 
I 100% agree. Um, and this is what I've been also seeing because I've been quite active on Twitter um, for a year now, um, less in the past few weeks. Uh, but I have seen a lot of photographers, you know, trying, understanding, you know, even what is a wallet? How do you set up a wallet? What does it mean? What is the gas fee and so on? Mm-hmm. And they have been learning along the way because they have been trying to put photography out there or, or image or art in general. So the education part for me is very, very big in bringing the technology forward to the um, to the mass audience and the mass markets. So this is a very, very good thing. Um, yeah. But then people tend to disregard and not understand all the risks that are related to holding some of the assets. Um, and that's a learning curve. So this is also kind of the downsides of it. Um, what are the risks understand. in your opinion? Uh, for me, the risk is, I mean, if, if you go into certain assets, um, the risk is always there because certain assets are linked to companies. Companies are very new. Um, and as in any startups, if you decide to invest in some of the crypto, crypto or token represents kind of the shares of a company. Um, and some people do not understand that because they do not have a financial background. Um, so this is a little bit the, the risk linked to that. And losing the money that some people put in cryptocurrencies and in blockchain technologies, uh, right. but not understanding why they lose it, uh, might also have the counter effect of people, you know, leaving the space and not wanting to come back again um, because they they lost it all. So this is also one of the risks um, that it has been involved. Um, and we've had a pretty busy year in terms of uh, crashes and and downturns and, yeah, no and bear market. And so <laughs> so this is also uh, this has been a tough time um, for for people trying to learn and get in the space. Uh, but I think the education part that you mentioned is really beautiful set because this is uh, one of the best way you can get to onboard people. Right. And hopefully what I'm about to say ages well, but even through crashes of FTX, Luna, Three Arrows Capital, Celsius, it still is not at zero. There's still, you know, the Bitcoin wallet, uh, Bitcoin wallets that haven't moved funds in over a year at an all time high, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. You know, I love that ETH just went to proof of stake. Yeah. Um, which, you know, throws out any arguments about environmental. Exactly. You know, whether you're, you know, if you're a miner, that's a totally different question or conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact is it's not going anywhere. And I think people initially, you see it all the time. There's a fight against it and then there's adoption. And I think it's still yeah. very early. There's still a lot of bugs being sorted out. But I think, you know, Photography is a potential vessel for people to really dig into how the future of decentralized finance works and how Mm -hmm. tokenized assets can be of massive value. Yeah. And the fact that photography is a great vessel to go through that also because it's so easy for anyone to enter the photography space already with a phone. We see that phones that have tremendous amount of quality and realize really great images for uh, social media and so on. And so it's very easy for people to start getting into that. Um, and we see also Instagram going in that direction, you know, of tokenizing some um, images directly on their platform. Um, yeah. So this is a great way to enter <clears throat> Web3 and the technology of blockchain through photography. So I think there is a huge opportunity behind that. Yes. And put your put your assets on a cold storage device. Yeah, 100%. 100% <laughs> Yes. Um, some people may say, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Others might. <laughs> Don't hold your funds on a centralized exchange like FTX, which goes insolvent in a matter of two no. days. That can happen. Hold it on a hardware wallet. There's, we actually have a link in the episode description to get uh, a Ledger X. 
um, an affiliate link. So if you want to check that out, go ahead. Um, let's move on. What does it mean to you to, quote, take full responsibility for your life, end quote? Um, I would say that, uh, first of all, it means that you do not rely on anyone to get your decision done. Um, and you do not blame anyone also for things that happen to you, even though some things might be very unfortunate. Um, at some point it might have been your responsibility. And if you would like to get out of a certain situation, it is up to you to do it. Um, so this is something that I try to live by, um, and using that internal locus, uh, way of dealing with things. So whenever there is something happening, um, even if it's not necessarily my fault, um, the responsibility is mine to take if I want to move forward with it or just to leave it as is. Um, and I believe this is something that is a tr of tremendous help also to push people to get out. Um, especially in photography, this is what I've seen, um, because I was a bit afraid in the beginning to go out and shoot on my own and go in the mountains. I didn't have any uh, mountain experience previously. Um, and so I would always rely on, you know, my partner or maybe my dad or some friends to potentially come with me um, to justify me going and shooting. Um, but in the end, uh, because it became also very strenuous, it's a lot of effort. And I understand that people do not want to join me. <laughs> so it was at some point my decision to do it on my own, learn on my own, be careful, but still do it um, and take full responsibility. If I don't get a picture, it's because I didn't go out there and not because someone didn't come with me. So I think it's, yeah, it's a statement I, I do live by. Right. And avoiding excuse making, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah, definitely. It's a very dangerous trap. Angel, thank you very much for your time today. I think this is a great thank place you. to wrap up. <laughs> 45 minute episode, roughly. Sometimes those are the best ones. Action packed. Yeah. Short and sweet. And, uh, <laughs> you know, time is the most valuable asset. We talked about crypto assets today, but nothing beats time. So I appreciate your time for you doing thank this. Thank you. Thank you for and, having uh, me. It was an honor. We'll have to continue that crypto discussion separately. At some 100%. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Where are you? You, you said um, you're heading out somewhere. Where are you going to shoot? Are you shooting something or is it something different? Um, I'm I am going to shoot back to the ice cave that I've been to um, in the beginning of the year where I had the horrible conditions. Um, mm. So I will be going back there uh, for three days for a shooting where I can kind of... Uh, bury that trauma and create a video around it. So this there is the goal go. um, for the next uh, few weeks. Going back for more pain. I love it. Exactly. Everyone, <laughs> everyone be sure to follow Angel. Her handle is in the episode description. Look forward to those ice pictures. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Take care. <laughs>